So we're in Luke chapter 18 today. Uh, go ahead, get your Bibles, open that way. If you need a Bible, want a Bible, uh, there's some on the welcome table right where you walked in. Uh, you can grab one there. And if you need a Bible, you can keep it. So um, we're going to be reading a passage, or each passage as we get to it today. There's really two passages. We'll read one, and then when we get to the other one, we'll read it at that point. Uh, and we're going to start with just this very short passage that has to do with children. Uh, so let's, let's just get right to it. Luke chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, illuminate our minds this morning to understand what we've just read and that which we will later read. Uh, We want to understand, we want to grow in our faith. Lord, make us able. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here's what's going on in those couple little verses there. This, This moment... It's recorded actually in three of the four Gospels. It's of some significance. And in uh, Matthew's account, we actually learn a little bit more. The the parents are bringing their children, right, literally infants, babies is the way uh, Luke puts it here. And they're bringing them to Jesus so that Jesus will will hold them, will put his hands on them, will pray for them, will bless them. And, And that's what they're hoping for. And word has spread at this point through the community that this is going on. And, and, and so what's happening in all the various houses is something like, uh, you know, someone telling, uh, a husband telling their wife, you know, Jacob and Martha took their baby Malachi to be blessed by that rabbi Jesus. We should do the same thing. Let's, let's go do that. And, and so before you know it, there's more and more people. The, the, the crowd is getting larger and larger as people are just trying to get close to Jesus with their baby to be blessed. Uh, it, it'd be like, if, if word spread around town here that Pat Mahomes was over in City Park just hanging out uh, uh, this afternoon, people would start to swarm and word would start to spread. And before you know it, it'd be almost impossible to get to uh, Mahomes. It, it, it's probably loud. It's probably unruly. You know what it's like when we have, have children uh, crying and, and, and stuff. Sometimes you can hear them even from the nursery. Um, and, and so the disciples at some point, they, they step in and they're saying, stop. No, no more babies. Like, leave him alone. Just, just take them away. Go, go home. Go somewhere else. And, and we're not told specifically why they do this, right? Why they rebuke these parents. Maybe, maybe they just want to protect Jesus' time. Like, this is, this is important. Don't, don't bother him. Maybe they don't see children as important. They want him to focus on ministering to adults instead. But whatever the reason, Jesus steps in and he says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And, and so what does this teach us here? Well, for starters, th- this shows us what a great love Jesus has for children. He does. It, it also teaches us to bring our children to Jesus. Right? The, the souls of children are capable of receiving grace, of receiving the Holy Spirit and, and salvation. 
And so we should endeavor to nourish our children's souls on the grace of God, to, to, to bring them to Jesus at every stage of life that we're bringing them to the Lord. And we do this by, by praying for them and praying with them. We, we do this by reading them the scriptures, by reading Bible stories, by, by telling them stories about our, our Lord and, and, and even the way that this changes our life, by, by calling them to faith, by answering their questions about God and, 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 and the world and thus helping them to develop a, a Christian worldview as, as they they grow up in the faith. And we also do so by bringing them for baptism, the, the sign of the covenant like we, we saw with the castings today. See, baptism gives children the sign of the new covenant and it uh, uh, welcomes them into this covenant community where they are brought up into the faith, right? Um, they actually belong to it. And I will say that is one of the things I absolutely love because I came from a Baptist background. Uh, when I came to understand covenant theology and, and reform faith in, in, in that regard, um, was, was that my children aren't strangers growing up in a church that we're hoping might come to faith someday, uh, but they were actually growing up as, as part of this covenant community. They were expected to obey the scriptures because they're part of this covenant community. We're expecting to see them come to faith because they are growing up in this covenant community. They have actual membership in the church uh, even. And, and so then... You know, we long for the day when, when, when they will profess their own faith, when they'll partake of the Lord's Supper, and that's an important thing. I, I know that's for us, was a huge deal when our children finally are saying, you know what, I want to partake of the Lord's Supper because Jesus, He is my Savior. He is my hope. And to, to hear them put that in the words and, and desire that and to see them start partaking the Lord's Supper is a glorious thing. So uh, I know many uh, who are like myself, coming from a Baptist background, might object to that. Right now, you don't like me, uh, if that's your view. I've been on the only other side of this. I know how it works. Uh, and, and so half-jokingly, though, I, I, I do want to remind you of Jesus' words regarding young children here, including infants. He says, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. And, and still, all that is secondary, isn't it, to what Jesus is really getting at in this passage, what we see in the last verse that we've read so far. He's, he's teaching that... Uh, uh, that to the adults around him, that we are to receive the kingdom of God in a certain way, right? He, he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now did you notice that, that he says here, we don't take the kingdom. We don't earn the kingdom. What, what do we do? What do you see there in the passage? We receive the kingdom. And we receive the kingdom like a child. When, when, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're, we're talking about God's reign and rule in our hearts, right? The, uh, of, of his people now, in this time, at this moment. And we're also talking about the ultimate coming of God, right? The already, the not yet as well. That, that fully realized reign of Christ when, when he will triumphantly return and, and, and we'll see it in its fullness, what we only see in part now. Jesus is, is thus talking about salvation, right? He, he's talking about coming to faith in Christ. And so, so what does it mean to receive the kingdom like a child? It's, it's not childlike innocence. I know we love that concept, right? But, but anyone who's spent any time around children know, yeah, they, they are sweet as can be most of the time. Uh, but it doesn't take long to hang out with children of any age to realize that just like everyone else, they, they too are sinners, right? Just because they can't actually express everything quite yet doesn't mean they're, they're not ready to do so even at the youngest age. Now, to receive the kingdom uh, like a child is to be 
completely, to be fully, to be utterly 100% dependent on God who shows mercy. That's how children receive absolutely everything. I mean, to be honest, children, and the younger they are, the more this is true, are non-contributing zeros to any setting, right? We, we have to dress them. We have to wipe their bottoms. We, we have to put food in their mouths or they'll starve to death. You have to, you know, as they age, tell them don't put the fork into the electric socket. All these things just to preserve simple life for them. In fact, the, the youngest babies, like, like Eleanor there, can't even hold up their own necks. You have to do that for them. Like, how helpless are you? You can't hold up your own head. Uh, day after day, children are needy of care. And, and that's how we come to Jesus helpless and completely dependent and, and needy of Christ to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Needy for everything and, and, and trusting like a child trusts their parents. So... Last week, we, we listened as, as Jesus taught a parable about a self-righteous Pharisee telling God just how great he is, right? What I have to offer. And he also told us about a contrite, a brokenhearted tax collector who, who is helplessly just asking God for mercy, right? So only the tax, it was only the tax collector who in this, that parable shows this childlike dependence when receiving the kingdom of God when receiving salvation. So in the passage that we're going to read now, and coming up here, there, there is this man who comes to Jesus and, and he's ready to provide something. What do I need to do? Just tell me. I'll take care of it, right? And let's just read it and, and then we'll see what's going on in this interaction. So, so if you will, grab your Bibles again back to 1818. That's convenient. Um, and we'll read again. <clears throat> and a ruler asked him, asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so here's this man. He's a leader in the community. People know who he is. And he steps up and he addresses Jesus as good teacher. He, he then asked the question of all questions, right? How can I inherit eternal life? How, you know, how, how can I be saved? These are the same questions. How, how can I have salvation? And now notice, though, that the rich man is assuming that he can do something here, right? That's what he's asking. What can I do that would earn salvation, right? Can I build a church building for you all? Can I provide food for a number of, of orphanages or, or orphans, right? Can, do, do I have to pray three times a day facing a certain direction? Or, you know, what can I do? He, he's communicating this to Jesus. You, you know, I'm a very capable man and successful man. Just tell me what to do and I'll take care of it. And so now Jesus' response to that is, is kind of odd right from the start. Je, Jesus isn't mad, but, he, but he's saying, hey, hold up a second. Why do you call me good, Right? 
What do you think? Is the rich man flattering Jesus? Maybe. But, but, but more than that, the, the rich man doesn't know who Jesus really is. He sees him in front of him. He knows he's a teacher, a respected teacher, but he doesn't really know who Jesus is. He, he doesn't know that, that he's speaking to the second person of the Holy Trinity. He doesn't know that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and that's where Jesus is going to be leading him with this response. When Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Which kind of raises a question. We, we call people good all the time, don't we? Do we? I mean, am I the only one is like, that might do that? Where you, you walk into a place and they're like, someone asks, do you know, do you know Stucky? Joshua Stucky? Stucky? And, and, and you're like, yeah, I know him. He's a good guy. And, and you don't think anything about it, right? And, and yet here's Jesus saying that no one is good except for God alone. Now, that's not to say that in terms of people, no one can ever be called good, right? I, I know Stucky well enough to know that he's, he's nothing like Hitler. Uh, he, doesn't kick, he doesn't kick kittens. I, I'm aware of that, at least so far. Uh, Stucky's a very kind person. And, and, and so compared to, to many, he's a pretty good guy. You know, I'd, I'd lend him my car. I might even lend him my bike. Uh, and, and so this rich man may have meant the term in the way we use it. No big deal in that regard, right? Uh, but, but Jesus is going to push him to consider who Jesus really is. He, either way, no matter how he intended the word, Jesus is going to push him to consider it another way. Because, you know, if the man really wants eternal life, he needs to know who Jesus is. That's the most basic necessity going on here. And so Jesus means no one is truly good without corruption. There's no one who's completely holy except God. And in that sense, do you still want to call me good teacher? That's a question for us. Do we want to call him good teacher? Do, do we really know who, who Jesus is? And in Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, you know, who, who do the people say that I am? Right? It's an open-ended question. And the disciples say, you know, some, some think you're John the Baptist. Others think you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. They have all these ideas. And, and then Jesus asked the deeper question, but who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, of course it's Peter, it's always Peter who's willing to, to spit out an answer without absolute certainty, right? Uh, he says, you're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Peter's right, and, and Jesus confirms that. Peter knows who Jesus is. The, the rich man never answers Jesus' question. But the response we see at the end tells us that he doesn't know who Jesus is. Even through this exchange, he doesn't learn who Jesus is. And, and so then, usually when someone's asked uh, about eternal life, or, or usually when, when Jesus is asked about eternal life, he usually says something like, like trust in me, or, or believe in me, like he says in John 14, 1. But, but here, he, he, he points to the law, right? He's asking, you want to do something, sir? You want to do something? Keep the law. Do that. And that's what he says. You, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not honor your father and mother. 
And Jesus only knows five of the Ten Commandments? No. It's assumed the rest of the commandments. He's just giving a little list here, right? The rest are assumed. And, and, and Jesus, actually, I think he leaves it out on purpose because of what's going to come later. You, you'll notice it. Uh, Jesus told him, though, just, just keep the law. Keep all the law. And, and the rich man, in, in these delusions of grandeur, right, this, this, this sense of no understanding of himself, responds with this, this idea. He's like, yeah, yeah, I do that. I keep the law perfectly. I've I have always kept it perfectly since I was a kid. I'm like, I'm like really holy, been so for a long time. So that's what else, right? It's as though this man did not hear what Jesus said in verse 19, right? No one is good except God alone because he's like, and me, and I'm good. J.C. Ryle here says it's impossible to imagine any answer more full of darkness and self-ignorance. To believe you've kept the law perfectly is, is just nuts. I worked at a summer camp, Sky Ranch, down in Van, Texas, uh, Christian summer camp when I was in college. They didn't pay us anything, but it was a really great time. Um, one of my co-counselors, co-cabin mates, was this, this guy. He's 19 years old. He's ordained in the Nazarene Church. Uh, and, and he told a group or seven of us, seven or eight one time, I, I no longer sin. Like I used to, but now I don't. And, and he was completely serious. Um, the other guys in the room, we all kind of looked at each other sideways like, Are you hearing what I'm hearing? Because we all know. We, we, we don't even have to know what's going on in his mind, and his heart. We'd watched him sin. You know, we're totally aware of his sin, and somehow he's delusional and not. You know, and here's what it is. This cabin mate had this very low view of God's law. So he could be like, I've never actually killed anyone. Check. You know, very low view of God's law. The most basic why or, you know, specific idea of it. And he had a very high view of himself. But, but he couldn't fool us any more than this rich man's able to fool Jesus here, right? Because we may desire to keep the law. We, we may succeed, right, in not murdering anyone. Well done, right? Not coveting our, our neighbor's donkey, well done, but do we keep the law perfectly? No, because every single one of us is a sinner through and through, right? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Or 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's what's going on with this man. And so Jesus, hearing this, is aware that this man doesn't know himself any more than he knows who Jesus is. And that's a big deal. And Jesus' next response is, is downright odd. It really is. Say, um, for instance, say, say tomorrow you're waiting in line somewhere, so you're standing on a tape X six feet, you know, behind someone in front of you, because that's how we do it nowadays. Uh, and the person six feet behind you suddenly says, hey, hey you, uh, I see your shirt's like a, is that a church shirt? Uh, so can I just ask you, what must I do to have eternal life? Right? That happens. And you're like, oh, this is, this is the moment I've been waiting for. Like, why couldn't evangelism be this easy? This is what I want people to ask. Uh, how many of you are going to respond with something like, I'd love to tell you, here's what you do. Go sell your house and then sell your car and sell your iPhone and sell your Nintendo Switch and sell all those trinkets that you have on the shelf. Sell all your possessions, in fact, and, and then go give your money to, to the poor. Go, go do that. Does anything feel off about that answer? Like something's 
I mean, if I'm overhearing you give that answer, there's no way I can stay silent in that moment. I'm going to butt my way into your conversation. I'm going to be like, hey, that's some serious heresy you're preaching right there. Uh, can we start over? Turn around. Talk to me instead. Uh, and, and yet, that's what Jesus is doing here, right? That's what he's saying to this man. <clears throat> he doesn't draw a picture of a cross being a, a bridge between God and man. He, he doesn't lead him in the sinner's you know, prayer. He, he doesn't tell him, you know, place your faith in Jesus Christ. He, he says, well, well, look at it. Verse 22, right? It's not... It's what I just explained, right? One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the man says he's kept the law, see, Jesus could have said, no, you haven't. And they could have gone back and forth for a while. Um, but, but instead, he's showing this man. He, he's really walking him right into it to show him how deeply the sin of idolatry has just rooted itself into his heart through and through right? Because just, just, which is commandment number one, right? Jesus never mentions it earlier, but commandment number one, Exodus 20, verse 3, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. None. The man wanted to know what he had to do, and instead of doing something, Jesus calls him to let go of something, namely to let go of this idol of his heart. Namely, to let go of, of this wealth and possessions that he has lifted up as, as something that is so precious to him. Verse 23, we, we, we see the, the man became very sad because he was very rich and he loves his possessions and I think it's fair to say more than God. He could afford salvation in the terms that Jesus presents it here, but he's absolutely unwilling to pay the price. His love of wealth meant that he could not let go of it. So now, a fun fact. Um, did you know that you can catch a monkey by tying a coconut to a tree or the ground or whatever it might be and cutting a little bitty hole into the coconut, dumping out whatever's in there, and then just pouring a bunch of rice in there and uh, inside, the, the monkey's hand will easily fit through it and then when he grabs the rice, he can't fit back through. I know some of you have been caught in cookie jars the same way. Uh, but what happens here is once he grabs that rice, the person, the, the guy, trapper, whatever you call the person who catches monkeys, the monkey catcher, uh, can walk right up to him and, and just slide something over his neck, pick him up, whatever he wants to do, because the, the monkey will absolutely panic, but he will not let go of that rice for some reason. It's, it's bizarre, and I know this sounds like a myth to you. I know that. I thought it too. Uh, I, I watched videos of it happening over and over again and read. It's an absolute true thing. They don't know why it won't let go of the rice. It would be so easy. Let go and you're gone, but they won't do it. And, and, and I'm watching these videos of these monkeys doing this, and all I can think is, oh, that's so stupid. What's wrong with just let go of the rice? It's not even worth much. It's just rice, man. Let go of it. And, and he's so unwilling, right? Uh, that's what's going on in our lives sometimes. That's what's going on with this rich man though, right? He, he's got all this wealth in his hand and he won't let go of it he, he, even though it's, it, it's got him captured. He, he's so unwilling to let go of this wealth because it's become a lowercase g God to him. And, and, and so, you know, that's what we see in him. Now, now there's a wider question here. Is Jesus asking us to sell all of our belongings and give to the poor? I'm going to go on a limb and think you don't think so because I, none of you have done that. Um, he's not. You're, you're right. He's not. You, you can't just give away your money and receive eternal life. 
If you could, that would be salvation by works, and that's not the gospel. What he's doing here is a specific thing to a specific man for a specific reason. The, the problem here is not the guy's wealth. Not at all. That, that this man was rich is no big deal. It's, it's that he is captive to these riches. They own him. His wealth stood in the way of his childlike dependence upon Christ, of, of, of needing Jesus. And, and so, no, you, you don't have to go and sell all your, your stuff. Now, honestly, and I know you already knew it before I said that, but, but do you kind of come to a, a relief at some point in your life when, when, when you're sure this, this doesn't mean I have to sell all my possessions? Like, I'm, I'm gl- I really like my bike. I don't want to sell it. Uh, or whatever it might be. Like, being poor sounds scary. I would rather not sell my stuff. Well, wh- why do we have that huge relief? And I, I can't help but wondering if it's because all of us, myself included, we, we love our stuff more than we should. I mean, I mean consider the, the, the question, though. If you had to sell everything you had to inherit eternal life, would you be able to do it? And you don't, but would you be able to? I mean, if not, you've you got to wonder, what does that say about our heart in relation to God? See, we're all prone to idolatry. Even if it's not money, that's one of the more common ones. But even if it's not money, if there's, you know, one beloved thing in your life that you'd be unwilling to let go of, right? If, if, inside that coconut, to let go of just to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Maybe a, uh, you know, a self-destructive relationship, a harmful addiction to alcohol or pornography or something else. Uh, uh, maybe some stressful attempt that you've, or a pressure you put on yourself to just present yourself to the world as if you have it all together. Or, or maybe it's as simple as just an unwillingness to give up control and, and the right to rule your own life and, and to give it to God, to give it to the instructions he gives us through his word. I mean, something to think about. Jesus watches this man uh, from other passages. We know he actually walks away from him. And he walks away full of sorrow and sadness. And, and Jesus is grieved by this. He's not like, boom, look what I just, I was right about everything there. He, he is grieved, brokenhearted, because he, he knows this man is walking away from eternal life. From, from, he's walking away from, from something, or rather someone, who is greater than all of his stuff. Yet he won't let go of it. And Jesus then says to the crowd, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus' statements keep getting a little stranger. We, we view wealth as an advantage, as, and, right? That's, if you have it, you're, you're off to a good start. Everything's going to be easier for you. And in a lot of ways it is in life, but one area it's not a great advantage is in trusting God. And here's why. When we have wealth, we are not needy like children. Right? In fact, as children grow, and the more they're able to do things for themselves, the less they need their parents. And, and, and so it's, it, it's difficult for us, right? Because we're like, I can buy the food I need with the money. I, can, I purchased a roof to go over my head. I got shelter. I'm good to go. I, we can pay the doctor's bill. We, we can do so many things for ourselves with our wealth. And, and so it's hard for us to see that we cannot save ourselves. It's hard for us to see that despite all these things we can do, we still can't find forgiveness. We still can't be redeemed. And so when we are quite capable in this life, it is difficult to go to God as needy children asking for mercy. And so, Christian, 
be aware of the dangerous power of wealth. Wealth's not evil, right? The love of money is, right? 1 Timothy 6.10 warns us of that. Uh, For the love of money is a root root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, right? It's not the money, but the love of money. And so first, ask yourself often, God, you know, even before the Lord in prayer, do, do, do I love my money more than I love you? Show me that. Or, or whatever it idol it might be, God, do I love this more than I love you? Do, do I love God more than popularity, more than career success, more than my house, my car, whatever it is, you, you fill it in. The second thing to see here is let's, let's not envy those richer than us. I know that's a, a common temptation, right? But think about it. A, a massive amounts of money has, has not given Taylor Swift joy in this life. I watched a documentary about her. I know I've seen it. Uh, or more importantly, it has not given her a, a deeper relationship with Christ. Don't be envious of, of more. You know, in the words of Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so then Jesus illustrates this danger of wealth by saying in verse 25, he says, For it is easier to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some have said that this refers to the needle gate in Jerusalem, a gate that's too small for a camel to walk through while standing up, and unless it got on its knees in a, you know, humble, praying-like thing and walked through it, right? Any of you ever heard that story before? A couple of you. Uh, It's a great story. The only problem is there is absolutely zero evidence of such a gate ever existing or that camels will even do that. Uh, So it's a made-up story, and, and really it's a problem because it misses the point, Jesus means a, a literal needle, right? I got one. We don't do a lot of visual aids, but here's one. There is a needle here with a tiny little, you might even have to take my word for it. Can anyone even see the needle? Okay. It's a tiny little needle, right? And he means a literal needle. And he means a literal camel, right? Big thing that would spit on me if it were here going through that. And, and you see those two things side by side and, and, and you'd be like, that's impossible, Right? And he wants them to see that, right? That, that when it comes to a, a rich person entering the kingdom of God on their own, there is no stinking way. It ain't happening. No chance. And, and that's exactly what the people do, right? In verse 26, you see it right there. It says, then who can be saved? Right? And, and it's a big deal because for them, they're thinking, if not the rich, then who has a chance at all? And, and the reason is, is that because many of, of the Jews had this common idea that, that's similar to the prosperity gospel that is infecting our culture, that, that the richer you are, it means you have more favor of God. And, and so you have a greater chance of being accepted by God to, to be into, you know, into heaven, eternal life. And, and so they're saying, if, if not even the rich have a chance then the rest of us, it's, it's impossible. And so Jesus tells them, what, what's impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, you're right. Well done. You've understood this exactly like you're supposed to. It is impossible for you to be saved on your own. But with the powerful saving grace of God, salvation is possible, very possible, yes, even for a rich man. You want proof of that. That with God, even the rich 
can come to saving faith. If your faith's in Jesus, you are the proof. Even if you're the poorest person in this room, by virtue of living in the United States, you are one of the wealthier people on this planet. And we could go all into that, but just trust me. Um, more proof of this. There is a, uh, there's a man who helped us establish this church and the RUF campus ministry, uh, putting up money, basically, that in order for you to get started before you, you had any money to be able to be sustainable. Uh, this man's crazy rich. Um, John and, and Travis and I picked him up one time. He flew in on his own jet, and it was like, I don't know, like getting a guy off a bus, but it was a plane. Uh, he put down $130,000 on a building for us as a down payment, so we had first option to buy it, uh, and didn't blink an eye, wasn't bothered one bit when we didn't purchase the building. And I, I tell you that because I don't think many of us can throw $130,000 and be like, it's no big deal. Um, he's crazy rich, but he's also crazy generous. He's not only helped us out, he's helped out dozens of, of PCA church plants uh, around the country. He, he's filled with the grace of God and the Holy Spirit is at work in, in this man. And so he's willing to let go of his wealth because even though he has it, he's not obsessed with it. He doesn't love it. He sees it as a, a tool to be spent on the purposes of God because he knows how desperately people need the gospel, how desperately people need the grace of God because he himself understands that, that he needs the grace of God. And he's received it. And I don't say that to, to pump up this guy. You don't know who he is. He doesn't know I'm talking about you to him to you. But, but just to tell you that, that God does work some amazing ways, that, that wealth doesn't have to become something we love because we have it. Okay, last thing for today. Don't forget the power of God to redeem hardened hearts. Whether you're thinking of your, your own heart, you're here and you're like, I, just, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in any of this Christianity thing. Don't, don't underestimate the, the power of God to transform your heart. Uh, for many of you, you might be thinking of someone you care about. No matter how much they seem antagonistic, no matter how much they seem to, to love the world and care little of the things of God, it's, it's not impossible because as Jesus says here, all things are possible with God. And so let us, let us be as needy children to our Heavenly Father asking for His mercy, asking for faith in Jesus, asking for new mercies each and every day. Let us pray. Oh Lord, teach us to come to you as little children who are needy through and through, helpless. Lord, when we think about of our abilities in the, in the realm of spiritual things, may we, may we view our, ourselves like babies with big heads and little necks unable to even do that. And Lord, we ask that you would show us what idols we are holding on to, what great riches we love more than you and and we ask that you'd work in us, give us trust in you so that we can let go of them, not be held captive by them, to, to not hold so tightly to them so that we might find great hope in the truth that, that with you, God, all things are possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.